We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the it's still Thursday, 19 January 1933. Chancellor Schleicher has an entirely unexpected visitor. It's Ernst Turgler, the head of the Parliamentary Communist Party. An unlikely visitor to the Conservative Army Officer Chancellor. He's here because the Nazi brown shirts are going to march outside the Communist Party's headquarters in Berlin, the Karl-Leibnicht-Haus, on Sunday, the 22nd of January, 1933. The Nazis had done the same thing just last summer in Hamburg, and then 18 people had died in the violent clashes that had followed. But then again, maybe that sort of bad behaviour by the Nazis is what Schleicher is hoping for, to make sure that Hindenburg will never entertain having Hitler as Chancellor. Such devious times we are living in. Friday, 20 January 1933, with some familiar news. Parts of Germany are in the grip of a flu epidemic. Schools in Brunswick and Gortingen have been closed in Hamburg, hundreds of new cases are being admitted to the hospitals every day. Berlin, for some reason, is immune to this epidemic. Go figure. Pavan is hitting a brick wall with trying to get von Schleicher kicked out of the Chancellor's office. He turns to Hindenburg's top people to get this happening. Hindenburg's son, Oskar von Hindenburg, and Hindenburg's top public service advisor, Otto Meisner. They both agree that they want to have Schleicher removed as Chancellor as their first priority, even if it means having von Papen share power with Adolf Hitler. That night, von Papen tells Joachim von Ribbentrop that Oskar von Hindenburg and Otto Meisner are agreeing to meet with Hitler. This is a huge concession on their part, Could things be looking up for Herr Hitler? I have to say that I doubt it. Saturday, 21st January 1933. Goebbels is spending the whole day getting ready for the big march outside the headquarters of the Communist Party. This is the biggest thing the Nazis have pulled since the elections in November. Sparks are definitely going to fly. Good news on the personal front for Joseph Goebbels. Magda's well enough to get out of bed, which is wonderful. But now Goebbels has a new worry. The boss is having trouble sleeping and isn't eating enough. If it's not one thing, it's another. The Munich police report today is telling the same old story about the Nazis that marks their trip on the road to extinction. The brown shirts expelled 35 of their members in December last year, 1932, for not 
doing their duty. Now today another 15 have just been expelled as well. Tomorrow night, Sunday 22nd January 1933, Joachim von Ribbentrop tells Hitler the secret meeting at his place is going ahead with President Hindenburg's closest confidants, including his son. Hitler's worried that Papen will bring Schleicher to the meeting. He doesn't trust Papen. He's got his own agenda. It must be so hard for a man of principle like Hitler not to be exploited by people. The biggest pain in Hitler's ass ever since last December 1932 has been one of the party's people, Gregor Strasser. The good news, though, is that I've just learned that Strasser's just been to see Hermann Goering. Strasser says he's throwing in the towel, getting out of politics. Hitler can do what he likes. Or is that really what he told Goering? And if he did, is he telling the truth? Who can you believe in Berlin right now? Well, that's the story that Goering tells Joseph Goebbels about Strasser, but who knows? The Cabaret Review by Peppermill at the Bonbonniere in Munich is getting rave reviews. There's another one in tonight's new Zürcher Zeitung. Of the stars of Peppermill, Erika Mann and Therese Gies, the paper writes, Charm! That is the quality that one sees in this young Munich cabaret. Heck, even Nazis are coming to see their cabaret. But I wonder if they're really going to laugh at the jokes they're telling at Hitler's expense. Or is their motive more sinister? Are they waiting for the day, soon they hope, when the Nazis will rule Germany and then these insulting Schweinhund will get theirs? Now it's Sunday, 22 January 1933. The police are raiding the headquarters of the Communist Party right this minute, this morning, before the Nazi march gets there. The police are emptying the building. They're driving the Communists into the streets outside at gunpoint, cleaning everyone out of the building. Armoured police vehicles have set up at all of the building's corners. I can see police moving into positions on the rooftops. They'll be watching out for any sign of trouble from the communists. They've been known before to put snipers on the roofs and to shoot at the Nazis from the surrounding buildings, just like they did a few months ago in Hamburg. The police can't tolerate the communists. The Nazis are more to their taste. So, what have we got here outside this building? Big crowd. 15,000 police, I'd guess and 15,000 Nazis. The communists are looking on helplessly as the Nazis march past right now. The Nazis are shouting abuse at the communists. Goebbels is delighted. When it all ends without any interference from the communists, he says, We have won a battle. When the march past the communist headquarters is over, it isn't over. The marchers go on from there to the Nikolai Cemetery in Prenzlauerberg. Hitler's there to unveil a new memorial to the Nazi brown shirt who wrote what will become the Nazi national anthem, Horst Wessel, a martyr to the Nazi cause, a man shot in the face but who had the decency to take many days to die, giving endless media opportunities to 
Joseph Goebbels to exploit. After Hitler finishes dedicating this holy shrine, he goes from there to Goebbels' place. Now they're both heading off to the hospital to visit Magda Goebbels. Goebbels finds Hitler's concern for his wife and attentiveness deeply moving. What a great boss! But Hitler's day isn't over yet. After he finishes visiting Magda, he's going to the sports palast. He's going to be giving another speech there about Horst Vessel. You've still got time to get there, I think, if you want to. Milking it for all it's worth. The young man wrote, as I said, the lyrics to the song that now carries his name, but he is definitely more help to the Nazi cause dead than he ever was alive. Hitler praises his loyal followers. Those fanatics who are consumed by the great task of their age, who live for that task and who die for it. What a long day, very busy. Now it's night. Sunday, 22 January 1933. A performance of Wagner's Das Liebsverbot is taking place at the Berliner Staatsoper. It's Wagner's version of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure. Attending the performance together with their wives are those two close associates of Hindenburg's, his son and Otto Meisner. After interval, they've both returned to their box as the performance resumes. After the house lights are dimmed, what's this? They're they're getting up, and they seem to be quietly slipping away out the rear exit. Where on earth can they be going? There's a heavy snowstorm outside, so they're going to have to hail a taxi. Walking isn't an option tonight. The taxi driver asks, where to? And he's given the vague answer, go to the district of Dalim. No one must know where they're going. This is a top-secret mission. They don't want any paparazzi snapping their picture like happened to Hitler and Papen a few weeks ago. When they get somewhere close enough, they tell the taxi driver to pull over and they'll walk from here. The final part of their short walk in the snow finds them at the front door of Joachim von Ribbentrop's villa. Waiting for them there are von Papen, Adolf Hitler and Hermann Goering. Von Papen had arrived at 9 p.m. Hitler and Goering a little later. Now it's 10 o'clock and Meisner and Hindenburg are knocking at the front door. They're stepping past the liveried butler into the hallway where they're greeted with a glass of Henkel champagne, Joachim von Ribbentrop's wife's family business. Everyone partakes. Well, that's not true. Hitler is a teetotaler. He sips a glass of water instead. Hitler manages to get Oskar von Hindenburg off alone to one side and draws him off into a room alone. This is going to be uncomfortable, I'm thinking. I know Oskar doesn't like the Nazis, not one little bit. It was only a couple of weeks ago that he'd said to his father, the president of Germany, Once Hitler gets his hands on power, he won't stick to the initial list of ministers or any agreements in the long term will end up with a party dictatorship. Surely he was being a little melodramatic, don't you think? Meisner is at this meeting only because Oscar had insisted in a way that you don't say no to. Now Meisner's sitting outside the room where Hitler and Oscar are talking. But about what? Otto would rather just be back in the theatre. 
Time passes so slowly when something's happening nearby and you don't know what it is. Finally, the door opens. Hitler and Oscar are coming out and they're joining the other guests who are still knocking back those endless free glasses of Henkel champagne. No one talks about what Hitler and Oscar discussed in their meeting. But you know one thing that they agreed on, and that is that Chancellor Schleicher must go. Now that they're all together again, the assembled company is moving into the dining room to enjoy a light meal served by liveried, white-gloved footmen. Now that the meal is over, Oscar and Meisner leave. They catch a taxi. I don't know if they go to the same elaborate lengths they did before about keeping their presence at von Ribbentrop's house a secret or not. It's probably too late, too dark and too cold to bother with all that. Now that Oscar and Otto have left, it's von Papen's turn to go off alone with Hitler. When the door has closed behind them and they sit down and make themselves comfortable, possibly for a long stay, von Papen says something that I find startling. I don't know about you. He says to Hitler that he's going to back him for the job of Chancellor. Wow, that's huge. What's huger still is that von Hindenburg, the president, obviously knows about this meeting. Does does he and is he in agreement with Hitler being offered the chancellorship? Or is he not? In the next eight days Hitler will be Chancellor, or he'll be dead by his own hand. Well, I don't know about you, but that has been one hell of a Sunday night. Uh, today it's Monday the twenty third of january nineteen thirty three. Papen is on his way to meet with President Hindenburg. He's letting Hindenburg know that he has an idea on how to organise the government. Step one, get rid of Schleicher. That's unanimous. Hindenburg has long thought that was essential. But what has always stood in the way of that has been finding someone to replace him. Replace him with Hitler, Papen says to Hindenburg. Not happy, Jan. Hitler? Hindenburg summons his son, Oscar, and Meissner. Hindenburg runs what Papen has just said about Hitler past them. Meissner agrees. Oscar, well, to be honest, no one what he said at this point of the meeting, so I'll just skip over him for the tiniest teeny moment. Papen says, Appoint me as Vice-Chancellor. Responsibility will be shared, and the Nazis will be controlled. An emphatic nine, says both Hindenburg and his son, the president saying, I will only accept Papen as Chancellor. Well, as you and I both can clearly see by today, even Papen has given up any hope himself of becoming the Chancellor. Maybe even more people hate him than hate Schleicher, and that's saying something. But Everything's on hold. Still, nothing's happening. Unless Hindenburg accepts Hitler, nothing is going to happen. No one else is being offered. Where's Hitler now? Nah. He's gone back to the Kaiserhof Hotel, his home away from home when he's in Berlin. And now Ribbentrop is just arriving at the Kaiserhof and he's wanting to see Hitler so he can tell him the latest news from Papen or Oscar. 
well, anyway, one of them, somebody in the know, von Ribbentrop says to Hitler, forget becoming the Chancellor, mein Führer, that is not going to happen, but I have a cunning plan. How about Halmer Sacht, the former head of the Reichsbank, becoming Chancellor? He's a keen supporter of yours, and just maybe Hindenburg will accept him. Can you guess what Hitler's answer is? You got it in one. I am the one who must be a chancellor, or the answer is no. The beautiful Jewess. No, I'm not anti-Semitic. We're living in times where being Jewish is not, well, it's not a good thing. Bella Fromm is visiting her old friend Schleicher. Anyway, her Jewishness is something that has to be remarked on in Germany today. I said she's beautiful. Nobody's perfect. She can't have everything, can she? Be beautiful and an Aryan. Schleicher tells her that plotting involving the president is going on to have him removed from office. And Bella thinks to herself, tell me something I didn't know. Alfred Clyforth, first secretary at the American embassy in Berlin, has just written a report to the State Department in Washington. One of Goering's most trusted aides has just approached him about obtaining a loan for the Nazi party in the United States. The Nazi party's frantically trying to get money from somewhere to bail it out of trouble. You seriously have to wonder how long it's going to be before the Nazi party starts to collapse. Wouldn't it be nice to be in the money? Maybe the Nazi party is going to have one of those happy Hollywood endings where everything turns out swell just before the end. Lots of luck with that. That only happens in the movies. It's now about 11.30 in the morning on Monday the 23rd of January 1933. Papen had been with the president a few hours earlier trying to persuade him to appoint Hitler as Chancellor. Hindenburg had batted that one off, not going to happen. Now Schleicher's with the president. All he has to offer is to dissolve the Reichstag, the parliament, and not call an election until he can get a majority. Honestly, no one is expecting that to ever happen. Hindenburg says, I think about dissolving the Reichstag, but I will not allow the elections not to be held. Did Hindenburg say he would consider dissolving the parliament? Is that what I heard? He promised Schleicher in December that he'd dissolve the parliament if Schleicher asked for it. And now he's going back on his promise? Hitler is pretty chipper. He's leaving the Kaiserhof Hotel soon to go back to Munich. But before he goes, he tells his closest supporters, In 24 hours a bomb will drop and it will be curtains for General von Schleicher. Even I don't know what he's talking about. I've heard nothing like this from any of my reliable sources. What does Hitler think is going to happen, or is he just making this up to keep up morale? Now it's Tuesday, the 24th of January, 1933. Do you remember Wilhelm Stagmann, SA stormtrooper, huge following? He's just left the party, like a lot of the SA men. He's getting sick and tired of Hitler's strategy to win government. The Chancellor or nothing, which isn't working. 
He tells his followers, who left the Nazi party with him, the historic moment of the movement has been missed. The party will lose every future election. The SA can no longer play fire brigade or palace guard, getting Hitler out of trouble. Enough with this obsession about legality. The battle for power must be fought more brutally and with more revolutionary spirit. There's a very strong radical socialist element in the Nazi party. The leader of the SA himself, Ernst Röhm, is very radical. These words could have been spoken by him. Yet another meeting at Wacken von Ribbentrop's house, Franz von Papen, is meeting with Wilhelm Frick, who is the leader of the Nazi party in the parliament, Hermann Göring and Ribbentrop. The problem they're trying to solve is how to get Hitler appointed Chancellor. If he's going to do that, he will have to get the leading figures of the right-wing parties to get behind him. The key man is Alfred Hugenberg. He's the leader of the conservative German National People's Party. He represents the traditional big landowners of Prussia and the big industrialists. He's 68 years old. Uniquely, it seems, no one in German politics likes him. No one. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, in any shed. He can't be budged once he's taken a stand on something. He bears grudges. His speeches in Parliament are breathtakingly boring. He had been a faithful servant of the old Kaiser and had been given the honourable title of Privy Councillor. Today, he insists that when you're talking to him, that he be addressed by that title. I'm thinking that someone who is stubborn and won't budge, who knows what he wants, is exactly the wrong person to be compromising with Herr Hitler, who is stubborn and won't budge on what he wants. I can't see this going anywhere. Another dead end. Hitler's in a maze, floundering around, always finding that there's no way through when he takes a turn. Now it's Wednesday, the 25th of January. The boring, pig-headed Alfred Hugenberg is meeting with his most trusted advisor, a man of great wisdom and foresight, Reinhold Quartz. Reinhold knows that Hugenberg wants to get his hands on some power. Maybe he's too anxious. Reinhold says that getting into bed with the Nazis will be dangerous. Command of the military and the police could not be given to the Nazis. This sounds like good advice to me. It's a wonder that there's any champagne or food left in Wacom von Ribbentrop's house. Entertaining and plotting again, he is. Oscar von Hindenburg is there. I'm a little surprised. I'm more surprised when I hear Oscar say these words to Ribbentrop. The idea of a national front under Hitler as Chancellor isn't a hopeless one. I'll be in touch with you again before my father makes a final decision. Ribbentrop is working really hard on this and doing an effective job, I have to say. Schleicher can't see any way that he can survive this crisis. Hindenburg's blocking him. Gregor Strasser, the highest defector from the Nazi party. Schleicher's great hope is going away into quiet retirement. The trade unions aren't going to support him. Surely, he says to himself, 
the unthinkable isn't going to happen. The man who, if he becomes the Chancellor, will drive the military into rising up and taking over running the country, instead of letting this crippled democracy that Germany has become limping on. The man who Schleicher truly fears taking over his office of Chancellor is Adolf Hitler. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I misread that. Got that wrong. It's Franz von Papen that worries him. Hitler can be controlled, Schleicher knows, but von Papen, he's where the danger lies. The Social Democrats, the non-violent, no-blood-in-the-streets, socialist, moderate party's top people, are having dinner together. The party leader is Rudolf Hilferding. Heinrich Bruning is also there. He had been the Chancellor of Germany until von Papen had had him thrown out. Hard to keep up with who is the Chancellor at any moment in time. Henry Kessler's at the dinner also. He'd been a diplomat and now he's an art collector and intellectual. In the last elections, he'd voted for the communists. He isn't looking forward to having that semi-deranged imbecile von Papen back as Chancellor. If that happens, there'll be an explosion of violence from the left and right-wing extremists. Everyone thinks so. Bruning says, what's the difference? The same is going to happen if Schleicher stays on as Chancellor. No one mentions what would happen if the impossible happens and Hitler becomes the Chancellor. No point worrying about that. That is definitely not on the cards. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE.